Well, there are two phrases that I remember from my childhood. I remember learning from older folks when I was a youngster that come to mind for me as I read today's text in Numbers 20. Uh, so I would encourage you to turn to Numbers 20. That's where we're going to be starting, and that's where we're going to be focusing our attention today as we continue this series in the book of Numbers. And we find the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel that remind me so very much of my own heart. Those two phrases that I mentioned were, don't be too familiar, and child, you're forgetting yourself. I heard those a few times. Moses and Aaron become guilty of both of these things in today's passage. Now, I remember my grandfather, who uh, was just a... <laughs> kind of a bear of a man, a big, strong farmer, and uh, very, very loving. He was not, you know, off in the distance or something, but uh, if I would ever get where I forgot that he was an authority figure and I was not, he'd say, don't get too familiar. He would be happy to have us sit in his lap and tell us stories, but if there was ever a time when we would overstep our bounds or not have the proper respect, he'd let us know. You're getting too familiar. We're not peers. I'm not you, you're not me. Now he would do that gently, as long as gently worked. <laughs> and if gently didn't work, uh, then it would be a little less gently. I remember hearing, uh, <laughs> hearing an older uh, woman she, I remember it because she said it to me. She said, Child, you're forgetting yourself. Because I was getting a little too wound up, a little too out of control. If you knew me back then, you know that was pretty normal for me. <clears throat> Might be now, too. But anyway, uh, so you're forgetting yourself. In other words, you're forgetting your place. You're forgetting that you're the child and I'm the adult. Back then, some of you are old enough to remember this, Back then, children called adults by their title or their last name, right? You didn't just call people by their first name. You had to earn that. It wasn't, you know, Rich or Jim or Sally Sue. It was Mr. or Miss or Mrs. or Uncle or Aunt. And it was a sign of respect. I think we've lost something in our society when we lost respect. And we see that all the time now. We... We lack respect for authority figures, for police officers, for teachers, for coaches, for parents, grandparents, adults in general. Somebody didn't have to be in your direct chain of command, if you will, to show them respect. Because you recognize that as a child, you were to show respect to your elders. Somebody say amen if you know what I'm talking about. In Numbers chapter 20, we read an account of Moses and Aaron. Uh, Moses specifically by name, Aaron is included, so he's obviously connected and, and involved in this, becoming too familiar and forgetting themselves. They forget themselves and fail to honor God in the process. Let's read, if you will, from Numbers chapter 20, we'll read the first 13 verses. 
I'm reading from the uh, NIV, and as you know, Heaven's preferred translation is the NIV 1984 edition. 2011 is okay too if you got it. You know, if you got an ESV, that, that's all fine. But if it sounds a little different in your in your uh, rendering that you have from what I have here, it's not because the text is different. It's because that particular translation is slightly different. We're translating from Hebrew into English, and if you've done any foreign language stuff, you know there are multiple ways to say the same thing. We don't have direct equivalents. None of that has to do with the text. I just don't want you to be confused if you're following along. So here we go, starting with verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the, gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. This is the word of God, bearing the authority of God, read in your hearing. Receive it in faith. Father, as we encounter today's text, pray that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, that we might see beyond our framework and what we are inclined to want it to say, that we would, that we would receive what you give us in the text. Lord, speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Protect us from the schemes of the evil one who longs to deceive and discourage and distract us today. Help us not merely to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. That what you are working in our hearts would take root and change us. Father, let us be changed for your glory today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we, uh, as we look at 
Numbers 20, we need to look at it also in light of 1 Corinthians 10. So I'm not going to have you look up a lot of uh, uh, passages today. Uh, I mean, I'm not planning to have you look up any, but you know I get excited sometimes, so we might have you do so. But uh, I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we want to see this. We're, we're going to look at 10. I'm actually going to start in, in 9. But uh, when, we, when we consider this picture that we have in Numbers 20, we ought well to remember that, um, that the, the Bible is not a random collection of stories. It's not a random collection of inspirational thoughts. It's not given to us to confuse. But the Lord is revealing himself in one overarching story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time and the creation of all things to the end of time and the consummation of all things, when the Lord brings all that we know now to an end and reestablishes the perfection that we had with Him in the beginning. Now, when we look at the New Testament, talking about the Old Testament, what we see is in the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. And in the New Testament, Christ is revealed and explained. Revealed primarily in the Gospels as he comes and, and makes his dwelling among us and he dies for us and rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. And in the epistles, the letters, such as 1 Corinthians... We have the apostles explaining by the Holy Spirit the meaning of what we saw in Christ and what we had foreseen in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, through the Law and the Prophets. And by the time you get to Revelation, what you see is the culmination of all of that. Christ returning, establishing the new heavens and new earth. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, when we see 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and i'm actually going to start with 9 verse 24 we want to see this this understanding that everything that was written in the past in the old testament was written for our instruction today as those who are on the other side of the cross we get to see christ having already come we look forward to his return but we know that he's already come in in numbers these are all types or foreshadowing of what will come. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 9 and 10, Paul is making some connections here that we, we're going to want to have in the background of our mind as we walk through this. Not the least of which is that Christ is the spiritual rock. Starting with 9.24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man <clears throat> running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You may hear there an echo 
of Moses' life in Numbers 20. Continuing in chapter 10, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This text that Paul is talking about here is often often abused and misapplied. How many times have you heard folks say, God won't give you more than you can handle? Anybody heard that? Nod your head if you've heard that before, right? How many times have you heard people say, God will never test you beyond your ability to cope with it? That's not what the text says. This is the verse they're talking about. There isn't a comparable one. Not of the same way. In fact, the entire picture of the scripture from beginning to end is constantly God giving us more than we can handle on purpose. There's a point to it because you and I were never meant to handle it in the first place. Whatever we're facing, whatever we go through is meant to draw us to him that he might reveal his glory to us. That's the beauty and power of our weakness and our failure is even when we blow it, it's used by God to drive us to him, which is the prize. So God doesn't let us be tempted more than we can bear because he's faithful and he gives us a way out. You have never in your life, nor have I, nor will we be tempted toward sin, toward evil, without a way out of it. There is always a way out. But that way out is a choice. A choice to focus on him rather than focus on my fleshly desires, my urges, my needs, my human understanding. When things get rough in this world, I default to the, the habits of thought that I've already built up. Now, for each one of us, that, that framework 
comes differently. It depends on how you were raised, the home you grew up in, the church you grew up in, the experiences that you've been through. Any number of things can form these habits of thought, but they don't accidentally, they don't accidentally become things that draw us to God. Everything that is accidental or easy in our life tends to cause us to drift away from God. When things go well, we have a tendency to get fat in our hearts and we don't, don't think God is needed. Oh, we might praise him with our lips. But that goes out the window when it costs us something. We only, we only praise him with our lives when there's a conviction inside that this is reality. And all the things that I perceive around me are less important than the greatness of God's glory. All right, so with that in the background, we see here again in today's text uh, this strong affirmation of the core reality for the book of Numbers. As we're going through this, this series in the wilderness, we're seeing in the entire book that there is a, a melodic line, a core reality at the center of it that draws it all together. That's this. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. We've been seeing it. You've heard me say it. Maybe you're tired of it. I don't care because this is the point, right? When we're looking at the series, this is the entire point of the book of Numbers. There are lots of sub points, but that's the point. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful to his promises. When God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. End of story. There's no maybe about it. Now, as we read of Moses forgetting himself and failing to honor God as holy before the people, as we see in verse 13, we see today's core reality. This is the, the governing thought in this particular story, this little piece of the narrative. It's this. When the Lord's servant fails, the Lord's purpose does not. All right? You got it? It's, it's written down for you. You got it on the screen. I'm going to say it again. We got to get this in our heads because this drives the whole thing. I didn't make this up. We're just observing it in the text, and we see this as that governing thought, that melody. When the Lord's servant fails, the Lord's purpose does not. Now, I want to talk to you about this under three headings today, and we'll, I'll throw them out at you real quick, and then we'll see them individually as we go. First, we'll talk about the folly of God's people. Then we'll look at the failure of God's servant and then we'll consider the faithfulness of God's character. First, let's talk about the folly of God's people. As you see at the, at the beginning of Numbers 20, uh, they have come full circle, if you will. There's a fast forward from, uh, from chapter 15 to now. So in 13, 14, we see uh, God's people re reject him. They get to the, to the precipice of the promised land. God shows them. He has them send spies in, and they check it out, and they come back and like, wow, this is better than we imagined. It's everything God promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, it's so abundant and productive, it took two men with a pole to carry back a bunch of grapes. That's big production, right? 
And God had already promised them, I'm giving this to you. You don't have to take it. I'm going to give it to you. This is your inheritance from me. You're going to come in here. You're going to live in cities you didn't build. You're going to harvest from fields you didn't tend. I'm going to give it to you. And for my glory, in my name, you're going to drive out all the nations from this place. We see elsewhere as we put the rest of the story together that this is because those nations were in rebellion against God, because they didn't know God, they rejected God, lived for themselves. God is driving them out. He actually, uh, there's a phrase that gets used throughout the history of it that he puts them under the ban. They are to be dedicated to the Lord by being completely wiped out. God's going to do that. He's going to use the Israelites to do it, but he's going to do it himself. And we see that in numerous accounts. They go in, they can't possibly win, but they win. Why? Because they're walking with the Lord, and the Lord has made a covenant with them. And when they follow God, when they go in his name, when God does the thing, the thing gets done, period. They get to the edge of the promised land. They look in, and it's awesome. But there are giants in the land. There are all these tribal chieftains out there, these armies. And it causes them to get so caught up in their own thinking and what they see in their circumstances and all the the scary things, all the what-ifs, that they forget that they serve the God who already delivered them from the most powerful army known on the planet. He took them out of Egypt right under Pharaoh's nose and they couldn't do a doggone thing about it. On top of that, God had the Egyptians hand over their wealth to them. Just out of the goodness of their hearts, I guess, right? We're going to leave. Pharaoh says no. God gives them 10 signs to convince him. (laughs) I just had a line from a movie jump into my head. I'm going to put that away for now. Every once in a while, I distract myself. So uh, God gives them these signs. He convinces Pharaoh, who has a hard heart, but it's broken through these, uh, these overwhelming signs that God gives. The people leave, and as they're leaving, the Egyptians are like, here, take our stuff. Here's our gold. Here's our silver. Here's our bronze. Here's our livestock. Take it all, slaves. Wow, that's just unthinkable. And then Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he sends his army with chariots after them and they're trapped up against the sea. Oh no, what are we going to do? You all saw the movie, right? It's better in the book. God opens up the sea. Moses, hold your staff out over it. That staff, as we talked about previously, represents God's delegated authority to his chosen leader. That staff it's a wooden stick, just a, just a stick, like a shepherd's staff, a rod. But it might as well be the most royal of scepters because it represents God's authority in that leader. Moses, hold that rod out. Hold it over the water. And the water part. And all of the explanations that the History Channel and, and so on come up with are bunk. It's garbage. It's six inches of water and they walk through it and there's a strong wind, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how exactly. If that's the case, then it's an even greater miracle that God drowned Pharaoh's army in six inches of water. God does what God does. And he delivers them. They walk through on dry land. The waters close over Pharaoh's army. 
God wins. And now they're afraid because there are tribal chieftains in here and they're tall. <sighs> Prone to wander. And before I mock them too much, they seem an awful lot like the guy in the mirror. And when I say the mirror, I don't mean the, that looking glass in the bathroom. I mean the mirror of God's word, the mirror of verse 3 of the song we sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the one I love. Just like them. <laughs> uh, I heard R.C. Sproul talk about his son's uh, biblical hermeneutic that whenever, <laughs> facetiously speaking, whenever you see, you're reading the Bible and you see people being stupid, that's us. It's not a bad way to understand it. If there is a stupid thing to do, we can manage to find it. We're pretty good at that. Well, here, we've, we've jumped from that time when God said, okay, this generation's not getting into the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to spend 40 years. You're going to have this, this desert generation. And when this entire generation falls, then you're going to get in here. So now we've fast-forwarded about 38 years and they're back to the same place they left from. That's interesting, isn't it? They, they had this time at Kadesh when they were close to the promised land. They saw it. They chickened out. And when I say chickened out, they failed to trust God. The text describes it as despising God, showing God contempt by trusting their own understanding more than him. Now they're back. Here we go. Take two. You, you struck out the first time. Now you're back up to the plate. What are you going to do? Their children, the new generation that will take the promised land, they get here and they're like, man, I wish we would have died with everybody else because here we are and there's no water and you know you brought us to this desert place and there's no figs and pomegranates and all that. Now you just spent 40 years being taught the lessons that your parents failed in so if they didn't get passed on like they were supposed to and, and God will emphasize this by the way in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that it's crucial for parents to pass on the truth of God to their children now they get here and once again they forget themselves oh man Moses, Aaron, what are you doing? You bums. We need a new leader. We want to go back to Egypt. They don't get to that in this particular text, but that's what their parents said. Here they are. And the funny thing is, when they came out of Egypt, not only did God part the Red Sea, immediately after parting the Red Sea, he gives them manna to live on, which they are freaked out about. And they're immediately complaining, oh no, there's no water, what are we going to do? And they have a very similar scene. This is their parents and grandparents. 40 years earlier, they come out of the, the, the Egyptian slavery into this, this barren place on the other side of the Red Sea, there's no water, and God says to Moses, Moses, take this staff, strike the rock, water will flow. Moses takes the staff, he strikes the rock. What do you think happens? Water flows. 
Because when God says it, God does it. The people had grumbled and quarreled with God. They tested him. And so they called that place, as they were departing Egypt, a familiar name, Meribah. Interesting, that's what they're calling this place as well. Also called it Massah. Massah means testing, because they tested the Lord. Meribah means quarreling or, or striving. They strove or contended with the Lord here. So this place, Deuteronomy will clarify it as Meribah Kadesh, as opposed to the earlier Meribah, reminds us of the same thing then. God's people have a tendency to be stupid and ungrateful. And they grumble and they quarrel and they complain and they strive against the Lord. And when I say they, what pronoun do you think I really mean? Somebody tell me. Yeah. When I say they, I mean we. It's us. It's not them. These things are written as examples for us, for our instruction. Yes, they really happen. Yes, they really sin. But it's not just about what happened in the past. It's so that we can learn from that history in our present and choose a different future. God has given us this. The folly of God's people here. Notice this. It is foolish to grumble against the Lord. Now that seems really plain, doesn't it? But I think we need constant reminders of it. It's foolish to grumble against the Lord. It's just the very nature of it. The why me, poor me, I don't know. You know, other people get better than I do. And we had it so much better in Egypt. And what's going to happen tomorrow? And I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. And what if my child gets hurt? Or, you know, all these different things. All of that is denying God's sovereignty and his goodness. In that attitude, that grumbling attitude, that worrisome attitude, what I'm saying is, I'm afraid God's got this wrong. That God can't handle this situation or that whatever happens is somehow outside of his control, outside of his plan, and will hinder the best plans for my life. As if my plans were better. It's foolish to grumble against the Lord, and we see that in the people. Notice, secondly, the problem isn't what we're facing, but where we're focusing. The problem isn't what we're facing, but where we're focusing. In the text, there's nothing happening here that they haven't already seen. It's all new. I mean, it's not new. Yeah, the opposite of what I just said. (laughs) So, as they get here, they already know God can provide water. Uh, hello, he created everything in six days, right? So, not a problem for God. He's done all these miraculous signs to remind them. They've seen him appear, manifest before him in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They've seen him pass judgment on those who rebel. They've seen him uh, affirm his chosen leaders through an act of resurrection, bringing life out of a dead stick. The problem isn't the problem. The problem is our heart and our focus. 
horizontal focus, focusing on the things of this world around us, undermines vertical trust. If I'm looking down here, I'm not looking up here. My eyes are not on Christ. My eyes are not on the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you've been here for any length of time, it's, I'm sure memorized because I quote it all the time. It's one of my favorite verses because I need this reminder so much. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, or the, the newer NIV, not Heaven's Preferred Translation. The, the 2011 version renders it, submit to Him. That is the connotation of acknowledge. I think that is a good rendering. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He'll make your path straight. God's got it. Stop stressing about it. Stop thinking you know better. Stop wondering what if. The old trope, let go and let God, which sounds so trite, so cliche, works really well on t-shirts and bumper stickers. Man, that's actually good theology. Stop thinking you're better than him. Let God do what God's doing. The problem isn't what we're facing, but, what we, but where we're focusing. Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians 3, the first two verses there. If you've been raised with Christ, or more specifically, since you've been raised with Christ, if you are in Christ, you've been raised with Him. Since you've been raised with Christ, you died with Him, you were raised to life in Him, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This down here, that's great. But why would you trade this world for, re for eternity? I don't, I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to eternity. I'm going to focus my attention here where things are going to last, what, 70, 80 years? You know, these days, you know, modern medicine, you're getting in your 90s. Maybe a couple of people get to 100. Or eternity, never ending. Let's have, let's have a smarter choice. You know, I'm not a great mathematician, but I know that infinity is greater than anything else. So we need to set our eyes on things above. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, of this world here, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The problem isn't what we're facing, but where we're focusing. Notice, thirdly, an ungrateful attitude distorts reality. An ungrateful attitude distorts reality. When we're ungrateful, when we're focused on what we don't have or what we fear we might lose, it tends to make us view things as real that are not. They seem real, they feel real, but they're not real. And it tends to make us dismiss that which is concrete evidence of God's goodness. We forget the wonderful providence and grace of God when our eyes are on what we think is wrong rather than on the Lord's sovereign goodness to us. That's why throughout the Psalms, so many of the Psalms are give thanks to the Lord for He is good and then recounting the things that He's done. Praise the Lord for His mighty works and then recounting the things that He has done. We have to remind ourselves in the midst of struggle, in the midst of strife, in the midst of all the junk of this world, God hasn't gone anywhere. 
He's the same God now that he was when you were so happy, when you're on the mountaintop, when you're at that men's conference or that women's meeting and, and you had that great moment when you were caught up in the, in the emotion of the song. Well, the truth was true then, now, and forever. And nothing changes that truth. It's not more true because you feel it in the moment. And it's not less true because you don't. An ungrateful attitude distorts reality. That's what happens here. They're like, oh, I wish we'd have died. Uh, do you? Is that really what you wish? Because those who died under the curse were separated from God. They didn't die in faith. They died under judgment. Is that really what you want? Oh, you... you you promised that you were going to take us to a good place and here we are and it's just bad. Everything is hard. Yeah, you forgot the reason you've been wandering for the past 38 plus years because of your sin. God hasn't changed. His plans haven't changed. His faithfulness hasn't changed. This is the process. But an ungrateful attitude distorts that reality and causes us to think that we deserve better or fill in the blank. Somehow, what I imagine should be is better than what God has ordained to be. And they think, oh, there's, you know, there's no figs or pomegranates. Right over that rise over there in the land of Canaan where you're going, Remember where we sent those 12 spies 40 years ago? I know you were just a kid, but you can remember this, right? So stop stressing about what you don't have and recognize who you do have. This is about him. It's always been about him. The folly of God's people is our foolish grumbling against the Lord, our, our ungrateful attitude, our, our mislaid focus. Notice in the second category, the failure of God's servant. The failure of God's servant. This is a text that is primarily about Moses, God's faithful leader of Israel, sinning and not getting to finish the job. Paul said, I don't want to be disqualified for the prize at the end of my race. Now, this situation with Moses, God doesn't reject Moses. He doesn't turn Moses out and say, I'm done with you. You're, you're going to be outside of the covenant. No, he's still part of God's covenant. He still has a pattern of life that is holy, set apart for God, a pattern of life that is faithful. And yet here, he makes an unfaithful choice. Now, I want to submit to you that it's largely an unconscious choice. He gets caught up in the moment and does what he should not do. Back at the Red Sea, when they come out of there and they're complaining at, at Massah and Meribah, God says, strike the rock. Moses here does what God had commanded before, but not what God had commanded now. We can't live in the past. God is doing a new thing. And he says to Moses, speak to the rock. 
And Moses gets out there and says, you rebels. You think he's happy with the people? Does he sound happy? You rebels. Do we have to do this for you? Do we have to bring water out of this rock? Hold up. Wait a minute. Something ain't right. Moses, did you think you were bringing water out of the rock? Was Aaron bringing water? You thought this was about you? You're going to stand here and take credit for God's work and get irritated with God's people. Come on, son. This is a very simple thing. God said, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. Instead, he speaks to the people. And he smacks the rock. And he does it twice. Back in the old days, when God told him to strike the rock, he struck it once. Now he strikes it twice. There's a lot of different commentators with different takes on why many are, are really good. None of them are really relevant to what we're talking about here. The point is this. God said, do this, and he did what he wanted. He trusted in his own understanding. He let the flesh control his thinking. He's clearly irritated with the people. Really? 38 years we've been wandering. You're going to do this now? We're going to go through this again? How long do I have to put up with you rebels? It's wearing on him. Of course it is. We get that, don't we? I mean, you do deal with people, right? <laughs> people can be hard. <laughs> 38 years of leading people around in circles, knowing that the only reason you're going around in circles is because they were rebellious and stubborn and sinful. You were right there. You were at the finish line. We shouldn't even have the rest of the book. And now I got to walk around for 38 years, for 40 years total because of your sin and now you're going to get me in trouble with God? Come on, man. And Moses is it's not like he's feeling something you and I haven't felt. There's no temptation that he's going through or that you're going through that isn't common to us. And there's a way out. The way out is to choose to trust God instead of myself. In the moment, Moses isn't thinking about God. And he lets the flesh direct his activity. And God says, what you did was dishonor me. By doing your thing instead of my thing, which is the root of all sin, you thought for a moment, maybe not consciously, but your prideful heart felt like you were God, not me. I am the Lord. Don't, don't miss out on what that means when we say the Lord. Lord is master, chief, Captain, boss, ruler. I have authority as God. Moses, you got nothing. The only authority you have is what I give you. And I have supported you and stood by you. Man, even as I say this, if I were God, I mean, none of these people would have been around. Boom, we would swallow you all up in the ground. It wasn't not just Korah. I'm tired of you. You're done. We're going to start over. How many times did he say to Moses, we're going to wipe them out? I'm going to start over with you. Now we got Moses. Moses, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm done with this. Good thing I'm not God. 
I'd have done the same thing to me. The number of times I failed the Lord just this week. And it's Sunday. The number of times I've failed him, for him to not cut me off, that's what I deserve. I deserve hell. So do you. We all do. The fact that you're breathing is his grace. Moses is the one who's supposed to know better and he fails. Three things we want to see here. First, notice spiritual leaders don't set out to fail. Spiritual leaders don't set out to fail. Moses and Aaron, when the people complain, what's the first thing they do? They leave the people and they go to the tent of the meeting and they fall face down before the Lord. They're humbled. They're distraught. They want to follow God's leading. They want to do what God says. It starts well. It ends badly. Spiritual leaders don't start out to fail. Now, don't get me wrong. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are people who are, they're not trying to fail. They're trying to deceive, to lead astray. There are bad people doing bad things who happen to have a leader's label. That doesn't make them a spiritual leader, amen? But the very best, the very best, still fail. They don't, start, they don't start out to fail. They don't set out on that direction. But when we fail to make the right choices, it's the same for the good guy, if you will, as for the bad guy. Everybody has the same law. That's been a theme throughout the book. We've seen it over and over. You have the same law for the native-born and for the foreigner. The leader, the follower. But the leader's held to a higher standard. Why? Because you know better. You're supposed to be leading. You're the example. So he says to Moses, Moses, I love you. You can't go in. You've done all this. You don't get to go in because you failed to honor me as holy. Why? He says, you didn't trust in me enough. You didn't believe in me to honor me as holy. Why? You disobeyed. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Obedience without faith is meaningless. It's the same as sin. If I'm doing God's things for my own purposes, I'm still worshiping myself and not him. But if I claim to be following God, if I claim to be worshiping God, I claim to believe, to trust Him, but I'm doing my thing, that's just lip service. It means nothing. That's dead faith. Now, to get it right, I believe, and because I believe, I do what He says. Because He's Daddy. He's God. Spiritual leaders don't set out to fail. Notice how He gets there. Leading people takes a toll on a leader. Leading people takes a toll on a leader. Now, uh, some of you are not, uh, not called to a leadership role. You're not maybe prone to that naturally, and it's, it's more work, and so it can just drain your energy. So you can see that right out of the gate. But even for those of you who are uh, gifted by God with, with leadership-type gifts, people can be hard. People can be hard. When I say people can be hard, I mean people who have been born are hard. 
they stop being hard when they're buried. And very few times in between are they not hard. I wish I could give you some super encouraging thing that's going to say, oh, hey, you're good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you. That's just not real. I'm not going to lie to you. You know people. You are a people, right? And half of you can't get along with yourself. I know I can't most of the time. I don't even like me. People are hard. Hebrews 13, 17 was our memory verse a couple of weeks ago writer of Hebrews says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Leadership is hard enough. Don't make it harder. This, this just put Moses over the edge. He had been giving himself to the people and this was it. Too far. And in a sense, you could say he kind of snapped. Now, there are a lot of other ways that I might have snapped, but Moses forgot himself. And he took unto himself the role of Lord by doing what he wanted, what his flesh told him to do, rather than what his master told him to do. Notice thirdly, failure has a price, but God is merciful. Failure has a price, but God is merciful. Disobedience dishonors the Lord. It's straightforward and it's simple, but it's crucial for us to understand it. Moses didn't do some horribly, you know, egregious thing by our understanding. He didn't go, you know, make a golden calf like Aaron did back, you know, at the time of the Ten Commandments. He just hit a rock. He, he was that close. He, he did kind of what he was supposed to do. He got the people together. He went and got the staff from, from presumably from the tent of meeting. Perhaps this is Aaron's staff that budded. Perhaps not, but he took the staff from the presence of the Lord, representing God's authority, and he went out there, got the people in front of the rock, and something just overtook him. <laughs> it was like, I, I want to obey. I'm so close. Doggone it, you rebels. And he strikes the rock. And it dishonored God. And it has a price. And God says, because you did this, Moses, you're not going to get to finish this. Notice he doesn't, in God's mercy, he doesn't reject him. He doesn't swallow him up like he did Korah. He doesn't say, Moses, uh, I have nothing more to do with you. He doesn't pour out his wrath on Moses. Moses has a lifestyle, a pattern of following God, imperfectly, but faithfully. But the choice still has a price. Nobody gets a pass for sin. Nobody. Nobody ever, you might want to mark this down as you watch the news, nobody ever gets away with anything. They might not face any kind of a sentence from an earthly judge, but they will stand before the righteous judge of heaven, every single one of us. And God will handle his justice. Nobody ever gets away with anything. There is no pass. 
you will either receive God's justice and pay for every single sin, every single careless word or loose thought or sinful motive or someone else will. When Jesus has paid that price for you, you receive God's mercy. You either receive justice or mercy. There is no other option. There is no ultimate injustice. God gives us what we deserve and that's not good for us because of sin. Or he gives us what Christ deserve, deserves because he gave Christ what we deserve. He took on my penalty and yours, the sins of all of us. We couldn't pay that. Nobody else could. He did. All we have to do is to believe, to trust him, to put all our hope in him. The price has already been paid. We just have to receive the gift by faith. Failure has a price, but God is merciful, which leads us to our third category in these last three points here. The faithfulness of God's character. Okay, so we looked at the folly of the people and the failure of, of God's servant. This, this folly and failure puts them in a bad spot. God is merciful, and his character is faithful. Notice in the text that the Lord's faithfulness never fails, even when his servants do. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on them. Point one here, a leader's failure is not bigger than God's plan. A leader's failure is not bigger than God's plan. We've all seen the, the national scandals, not just of secular leaders. I, I honestly am not overly stressed about the unbelieving world acting like the unbelieving world. I get really bothered by Christian leaders who fall. I get really angry about those who deceive. Some of you have heard me rant about that. Those who claim to be Christian leaders and mislead and prey upon the flock. I got a problem with that. Not real shocking. My heart bleeds over those who have been so faithful and make stupid choices. And they fall into scandal and the church gets a black eye and people get hurt. There are victims of such choices. But understand, no matter who the leader is or how big their failure, it's not bigger than God's plan. Moses' sin did not keep God from doing what God had purposed to do. There was a consequence. There was a price. And I believe that the people, in a sense, were punished for it. They suffered by not having Moses. Now, they weren't, they weren't punished as if they had done it. But this leader who had been so faithful doesn't get to take them in. They have to start over. And that's a sort of punishment. It's a consequence. There are victims to our sinful choices. There's a ripple effect. But at no point does that ripple effect keep God from being God. 
his faithful character shines through. Notice, secondly, the father does not abandon his children. The leader's failure is not bigger than God's plan. The father does not abandon his children. (laughs) The children of God were ungrateful even now. We saw this. They grumbled, they quarreled, they complained. Yet God did not fail to provide for them. Moses failed to honor God in the moment. But God still had the water come. Moses disobeyed. You're supposed to speak to the rock. He spoke to the people and struck the rock. And God still gave them the water. Don't let the flaws, the failures, the sin of God's vessels keep you from the living water of Christ. Don't turn away from the church or from the gospel because somebody somewhere was a jerk. Because people are jerks. The, The best of men are men at best. And there is never a time when we should be having our primary hope and faith in a person that isn't Jesus. The father does not abandon his children. They were ungrateful, but he didn't fail to provide. Moses failed to honor God in this moment. He failed to show him as holy. Yet God would still bring them into the promised land. It's good to know. It's good to know. And the the whole book of Numbers emphasizes it. God's faithfulness is not hindered by our unfaithfulness. Choices do have consequences, but God's character doesn't change. The father doesn't abandon his children. Lastly, notice this. God's glory is revealed in his holiness and his love. God's glory is revealed in his holiness and his love. The Lord's purpose is to reveal his glory, and he does that whether through our faithfulness or through our sin. He will reveal his glory. What was his accusation, his, his, his charge against Moses and Aaron? You didn't trust in me enough to honor me as holy before these people. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show myself to be holy before these people by holding you accountable for your sin. You see, even when Moses and Aaron failed, when they sinned, God's holiness is present in his judgment of them. Nobody gets a special privilege. Nobody gets a special indulgence. Oh, it's okay for Moses. Not okay for this guy, but it's okay for Moses because, you know, he's my buddy. He's my friend. The Bible tells us that God spoke to Moses as one speaks to a friend. The friend doesn't get a pass. It's the same expectation, only higher, because you know me. And God's holiness is revealed. But also his love is revealed. We see that that God doesn't abandon his children. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't even turn away from Moses. just has a consequence for this choice. His purpose is to reveal his glory. Whether through our faithfulness or through our sin, he's going to do that and nothing will thwart his plans. God's holiness is on display when even his chosen servant Moses and his chosen priest Aaron are held accountable for failing to honor him as holy. His steadfast love and mercy are displayed in the way he continues to show kindness to uh, his stubborn, ungrateful children. God's character is faithful 
even when his servants fail and his people are foolish. His love never fails. His plans never fail. His purpose never fails. But we do, even the best of us. As we wrap this up, understand that our hope cannot be found in our leaders. I'm going to say that again because I hope it resonates with you. You've got to understand this. Our hope cannot be found in our leaders. It must be found in Christ alone. He is the solid rock on which we stand. And out of that rock comes a never-ending flood of living water. The living water that quenches our spiritual thirst forever with its ever-flowing stream is not provided by the hand of even the most faithful and skilled leaders. The best of men are men at best. They're merely the voice of the servant speaking to the rock at the Lord's command, and they will stumble. If I haven't disappointed you yet, it's just because you don't know me well enough. Spend more time with me, you'll be more disappointed. My wife's the first to chuckle about that. She knows me better. God's leaders will stumble. They will fail. That doesn't mean that it's okay to embrace sin. It doesn't mean that it's okay for God's leaders to have a lifestyle that doesn't honor him as holy. We must be faithful. But if we expect Christ-like perfection from those who stand in a pulpit or those who lead as overseers or those who have gone before us and have taught us about Christ, we will be disappointed because there's only one Messiah, only one Savior, only one Lord. The flesh will temporarily overcome our our leaders and they will fail to honor God as holy by living according to the desires of the flesh. But that doesn't ever hinder the Lord's purpose of revealing his glory in his holiness and in his love. Perfectly revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. He alone leads perfectly without ever stumbling. He alone has faced every temptation, even as we do, yet without sin. For that reason, he is able to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We're able to receive the living water because Jesus, the rock from which that living water flows, died in our place to pay for our sins and rose to life to secure our relationship with God. Now, you may be hearing this right now, and by God's grace, it's clicking for you for the first time. You may have been in church your whole life, and, it, and you never quite got it. And, and right now, by God's grace, His Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I'm talking to you. Maybe He's stirring your heart right now to surrender and receive Christ. If you're thirsty for the living water, come to the fountain. Come to the rock of Christ. There are no hoops to jump through. Just believe his word. The work of God is to believe in the one he sent. We're saved by his grace, his action, not ours. But that grace comes to life in us when we believe and place all our hope in him. He'll take care of the rest. Living it out is the result of the relationship, not the cause. We can't earn God's favor. 
When we receive Christ as Savior, we embrace him as Lord, our chief, captain, master. If that's where you are today, don't wait. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Tell someone. Come see me after the service. Tell the person that you came with. Tell someone. Just don't ignore it. If you're serious about finding real life in Christ, act on it. Now, perhaps you consider yourself a Christian, but you've allowed the failures or hypocrisies of others to keep you from, <clears throat> to keep you from fully trusting and embracing the fellowship of other believers or from fully participating in Christ's body, the church. You need to know that your hope is not in humans, not in religion, but in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You need to know that when the Lord's servant fails, the Lord's purpose does not. Yes, people have failed you. And the church has disappointed you because the church is made up of people and people fail. People are sinful and fleshly and foolish and weak. But Jesus is not. The Lord knew full well what he was doing when he created the church using flawed, weak, sinful people. He knew how prone to wander we would be. But he demonstrated his love by sending his son while we were yet sinners. He saved us by his blood and he is progressively sanctifying us even now by his spirit. One day, in that final day, it is the destiny of everyone who is in Christ to be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. You will win. If you are in Christ, you will one day be without sin. But down here, in the meantime, we walk a rocky path and we stumble. Don't stay down. He is sanctifying us progressively. The Lord knew what he was doing. He demonstrated his love to us in Christ, but we will not be perfect until we see him face to face. And he still calls us to a life together as one body. One body with imperfect members. We can't rightly live out his commands apart from a, a, a commitment, a covenant commitment in the often challenging context of loving others in a local church. People just as challenging as we are. That includes faithful but imperfect leaders who are bound to disappoint us. It's to God's glory that he draws straight lines with crooked sticks. So let's spend a little less time lamenting the crooked sticks and more time being amazed by the one who holds us in his hand and uses us to accomplish his perfect purpose. Let's pray together. Father God, there are no words that can adequately express the infinite nature of your grace and an appropriate level of gratitude. So Lord, as we, 
as we look at what you have done here in these Old Testament stories written as examples for our instruction and our warning that we might not be like that, that we might choose a different path. We are so thankful that you sent your son Jesus when we were not even desiring you. You sent your spirit to us to change our hearts, to open our eyes, to take the hardness and make it soft so that we could receive the message that you have for us. Lord, I know that I will never be worthy of the calling but it was never about me in the first place. And so I pray for our leaders. I pray for our overseers. I pray for the pastors of the other churches in our community. Father, make us faithful. Be merciful toward us in our weakness and our failing and our wandering. Seal our wandering hearts to you. Father, I pray also that you would expose the wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who would lie to your people and distort your word and pervert the pulpit. Expose them, Father. Take the lampstand from among them. May it never be so here. But Father, if we ever at this church fail to glorify you, remove us. And Father, to the extent that I fail to glorify you, remove me. Speak to your people now as we sing, as we engage together in this sacred celebration. Lord, speak beyond this moment that your spirit and your word might cut through us like a two-edged sword throughout this day and this week. That you would bring us back again to gather with your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.